I'm Evan Knappen, and welcome to Gun Lawyer. Oh, I've got a lot of cool stuff to tell you about, some some good news. I know we're always looking for good news here, and i got some good news for you. But before we get into the good news and some other letters and interesting things, I just want to say you're listening to this show, uh, and it's just uh, a day or two before Election Day. And I know you're probably sick of hearing about get out and vote. But I'm going to tell you right now, get out and vote. You you have to vote. One of the toughest things in all my years of activism for the Second Amendment and gun rights and knife rights and all that has been apathy. Apathy from our own people. Don't be that guy. Or gal okay no apathy you, this is so critical so crucial we are at midterms and we have to send the message we have to send the message because putting aside all the other issues that have been wrecking our lives under the current administration just focusing on what we're talking about today which is Second Amendment issues then it's, it's critical that we get out, make that vote, make that statement so they can see what they're, what they're in for. And let me just tell you that we have uh, a strict policy here, a strict policy of how to determine who to vote for. Because some of you may say, well, who should I vote for? And I'm going to make it real simple. You vote Republican. It's that simple. It doesn't matter who the person is. Not in this election, it sure doesn't. Not one bit. We've got to vote Republican to send the message and get the Republicans in power in both houses of Congress. We got to do it. It's incredibly significant because Republicans have to gain the power in both houses. Once the Republicans have the power, then Biden's anti-gun, anti-2A agenda can be stopped. And more than that, way more than that, because the Republicans will then be in control of the committees. And the committee, you see, they're what decide what bills go forward, but more importantly, what investigations take place. And then they'll be able to use the power of the committee to subpoena and to investigate all the wrongdoings of the Democrats and their cohorts that they've been doing to America, to you and me, and our rights. And this also means getting into the activities of the ATF and the FBI in what they're doing to gun rights. It means the ability to investigate and go at all these things so that we can finally actually get some real information out there, not what the Democrats have wanted to hide and conceal and fool the American public about. 
and it goes directly to our rights across the board. Everything from their being in cahoots with social media and stopping even my voice from social media, etc., to telling you things you need to know, our ability to have discourse, to the administrative and executive orders by Biden intruding on our Second Amendment rights. All these things are at stake and in play, and other proposed laws. And how about court appointments, judge appointments, maybe even Supreme Court appointments? They have to have that approval by the Senate. We need Republicans in control because there's nothing better that they would like to do than to turn the court around as a weapon against us. So it's critical. And even in the local races throughout the land, there needs to be such a red tsunami, not just a red wave, a red tsunami, to slam them into reality and to stop taking our rights and threatening our rights and doing the things that uh, they seem to get away with with impunity. That will be no more. So do your part. I'm counting on you. You know I'll be out there. Make sure you vote. Now here's some good news. Some good news in knife rights. That's right. Remember, the Second Amendment is not just the right to keep and bear guns. It's the right to keep and bear arms. And arms include knives as well as guns and many other weapons. Any weapon that is utilized in self-defense, any weapon utilized for hunting, etc. This is shown by history in history, text, and tradition of our American laws. And I've researched the earliest knife laws in America. I did a, a piece on this in the Knives Annual uh, for 2021. And you can read it, the oldest knife laws in America. And I trace those laws. And you know, in those days, the old days, you were required to have edged weapons. You were required as part of the militia, of which every able-bodied man was part of, to not only have your, your firearm and your ammunition, but you were also required to either ha to have a bayonet or a tomahawk. Yeah, that was actually in the law. You, had, you could pick, but you needed an edged weapon on you as part of your accoutrement. That's what the well-regulated part means whenever you hear the antis talk about, well, the Second Amendment says we can regulate you. No, that's not what regulation meant. Well-regulated meant well-equipped. And being equipped was incumbent on the individual. And that equipment was often outlined in law. And that included edged weapons. And the history of knives as protected by the Second Amendment is clear. And they are arms. And it's been noted and recognized in the Heller decision and Bruin decision about knives being arms and its arms that are what are protected under the Second Amendment. And so in line with our Second Amendment rights, I'm very happy to say that Pennsylvania has officially repealed its ban on switchblade knives. That's right, that archaic 
law from the 50s banning so-called switchblades that somehow they're intrinsically evil or some nonsense because they watch too many movies about, you know, West Side Story and James Dean with switchblades and well, that's a symbol of youth violence. And, you know, hey, man, in America, if you ban the symbol, that's how you stop crime, right? Well, all it did was remove from the public ability to have a knife that is incredibly utilitarian, that opens with one hand for both safety and ease of use and is one of the few folding knives that actually lock closed as well as lock open. Well, I am very happy to say that Pennsylvania has repealed their ban, and it takes effect on January 2nd of 23. So this coming January, the repeal of Pennsylvania's switchblade ban uh, becomes effective, and it is really great. I tell you, I've been very much involved from the start with this effort, what I call the Knife Liberty effort. And in the Knife Liberty movement, in 2010, New Hampshire was the first state, modern state to of modern times, to repeal its ban on switchblade, dagger, dirk, and stiletto. And I spearheaded that and coordinated it, uh, working with Knife Rights, a great Knife Rights organization. If you don't belong to Knife Rights, you should. Knife Rights is like the NRA for knives, so to speak. And uh, it's a, Doug Ritter is their chairman and works diligently. And uh, Todd Rathner, both are good friends of mine, is an excellent lobbyist and has done great work. And here is yet another example of their great work. We've actually had uh, Doug on the show as a guest, and the Knife Liberty Movement here has just done so well. And now, with Pennsylvania repealing its knife laws, they become uh, basically the 20th state, either the 20th or the 21st, since 2010, when we first did it in New Hampshire. The following states, knife rights, has gotten uh, repeals of bans or restrictions on switchblades, and that includes, of course, New Hampshire was the first, Alaska, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Maine, Michigan, Missouri, Montana, Nevada, Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, Washington, Wisconsin, and, of course, now Pennsylvania. So that is fantastic work, and it's critical that we repeal any of these knife laws while we have the opportunity because, unfortunately, with gun laws, even when we had the 1934 Machine Gun Act passed in the 30s, we had a window of opportunity in the 50s when all these men had returned from World War II and they knew about guns, and they understood how machine guns and personal weapons saved their ass in war, and there was no organized anti-gun movement at the time, and they could have repealed. I honestly believe in my heart they could have repealed 
the National Firearm Act in the 50s, but they didn't. And then the 60s hit, and the assassinations, and the politics, and we've been fighting for our gun rights ever since. And here, with the essentially the switchblade bans that took place in the 50s, and we're repealing state by state, and of course the goal will be repeal the federal prohibition, the federal restrictions. And now with so many states, I think we're at least 40 or more states that don't have restrictions on switchblades. And like I said, all the 20 there were ones that did that have been removed. We're left with you know maybe 10 states or less for the whole country that even restrict them. Why do we have a federal law that is a enormous restriction on what is really called automatic knives? It shouldn't be there. And I believe we'll, we're heading with great momentum to getting that repeal done. Now, here's the interesting thing about the fight for knife rights and repealing switchblade laws. You know, when we did it in New Hampshire... I wrote an article that was appeared in the uh, appeared in Blade magazine uh, afterwards in 2013, and the article is called "Miracle uh, in in New Hampshire," and you can read that article for free. I got permission to put it up as a PDF. If you go to Knife Law Online, Knife Law Online is the history of our success in New Hampshire and. You can read the Miracle in New Hampshire uh, article. And the reason I said it was a miracle is because, is because in New Hampshire, there are 525 legislators, arguably. In other words, there's 400 in the House. Yes, 400 in the New Hampshire House. It's the third largest legislative body in the world in little old New Hampshire. Then there's 24 uh, senators and one governor, okay? So 425 politicians, if you will. And when we repealed the knife law in New Hampshire, both houses and the governor's chair were held by Democrats. And it's kind of astounding. But then again, uh, New Hampshire Democrats, I guess, uh, which says something. But it was. And even though it was Democrats in power, uh, we were able to unanimous, unanimous passage of a bill repealing the ban on switchblades. And it is, you know, basically a miracle. But I got to tell you, in Pennsylvania, I am really surprised, but it's true. You're the governor of Pennsylvania, right, uh, Tom Wolf, who, who signed this, and we have bipartisan effort by both Representative Causer, who's a Republican, and we have uh, the Democrat Senator uh, uh, Street, who's a Democrat. It was a bipartisan effort to have the bill uh, passed and get a load of the numbers here folks it's pretty amazing the repeal in Pennsylvania passed in the house 202 
to only one against it. 202 to one. And in the Senate, it passed 50 to zero. It almost was the equivalent of the miracle in New Hampshire. It only missed by one. And that's amazing. Think about those great numbers of both Republicans and Democrats doing the right thing in repealing the knife laws. You see, the knife law doesn't have the same stigma and politics of the gun laws. And we don't have an organized anti-knife group as exists with guns. And so the ability to make headway, the ability to get liberty for knives, this is our golden age of opportunity. And I'm so thankful that Knife Rights is moving on doing that. And by the way, that was not the only victory to have just occurred. Because we also just had a victory in New Jersey. And I will tell you about the New Jersey victory when we come back. For over 30 years, attorney Evan Knappen has seen what rotten laws do to good people. That's why he's dedicated his life to fighting for the rights of America's gun owners. A fearsome courtroom litigator fighting for rights, justice, and freedom. An unrelenting gun rights spokesman tearing away at anti-gun propaganda to expose the truth. Author of six best-selling books on gun rights, including Knappen on Gun Law, a bright orange gun law Bible that sits atop the desk of virtually every lawyer, police chief, firearms dealer, and savvy gun owner. That's what made Evan Knappen America's gun lawyer. Gun laws are designed to make you a criminal. Don't become the innocent victim of a vicious anti-gun legal system. This is the guy you want on your side. Keep his name and number in your wallet and hope you never have to use it. But if you live, work, or travel with a firearm, the deck is already stacked against you. You can find him on the web at evannappen.com or follow the link on the Gun Lawyer resource page. Evan Knappen, America's Gun Lawyer. You're listening to Gun Lawyer with attorney Evan Knappen. Available wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I am a lawyer. I am a lawyer. Okay, welcome back. And thanks again for being a dedicated Gun Lawyer listener. We are able to get the word out. And let me tell you, I have gotten so many people that have uh, called me in the nick of time over so many of these issues that I'm able to raise on the show and I'm able to advise these people and save them, save them from really bad problems that they were heading into regarding their carry license law and other topics that we discuss. So it really makes me happy to protect and help protect uh, fellow uh, gun owners and those that love and treasure the Second Amendment. Well, let me tell you, we got a, some good news, shockingly, out of New Jersey. Of course, we're fighting that horrible 4769 bill that basically guts the utility of a carry permit and completely violates the Bruin decision in endless ways. And as soon as this thing ever passes, it's going to be instantly uh, litigated to oblivion, I'm sure. But 
In the meantime, that bill was so atrocious that it also had huge sweeping bans on weapons, including knives. And it was literally going to limit everyday items that in any way could be construed to be a weapon, including knives and hammers and uh, rope and you name it, because it was so broad. It was insane. And the bill is still terrible, but I'm happy to report that it's been amended. And the general all-inclusive sweeping weapons ban part of it has been removed. So now it is only focused on firearms and destructive devices. So that's really funny. Firearms and destructive devices. Yeah. In case any of you wanted to carry hand grenades in New Jersey... Um, can't do that under this bill, all right? I get that. But, uh, you know, we still have a big fight over the gun part. But luckily, the part that would have affected knives and all these uh, other subcategories, sporting equipment and turning all these things into felony offenses beyond belief for simple possession, etc., that is gone. And to that end, not only did knife rights play a great role, but of course, so did uh, our state association, Association of New Jersey Rifle and Pistol Clubs, which you all should be a member of, uh, and Scott Bach, who's our executive director. Uh, great job, and folks that testified at the hearings and such, I congratulate you, and the efforts paid, at least in this regard for now, causing the amendment and causing delay of that horrible bill. The fight is still on. We're still going to have challenges here for sure. But at least that part's uh, been removed, that threat to all the other arms that are protected under the Second Amendment. So I'd like to jump now to some letters. I love letters, and you write great letters, folks, and I read them, and I wish I could get to all of them, but we just don't have the time. But I have some here that I think you may find interesting. So this one says, uh, Hi, Evan. I have a Vertex backpack designed as a concealed carry holster. It is an excellent design and swings around quickly to reach open and reach in and access your pistol. It's a small-looking, plain backpack that actually mounts near your hip, not your back. This allows for a full-size handgun with two mags to be carried. Also, as a bonus, you can buy ballistic armor and put it inside, and it can be used as a small shield. My question to you is, while it's on your body, it's a concealed carry, but let's say I'm driving, and I take it off and put it in the passenger seat. Is that legal? Okay, so... Here's the deal currently in New Jersey. Currently in New Jersey, when you look at what is actually prohibited and what a carry license does, you have to realize that New Jersey currently does not have a law regarding carrying of a handgun. Let me say, wait a minute, what is? what are we fighting? What are all these permits? What is? Well, let me explain, and I'll tell you why. New Jersey has a handgun possession law. 
Okay, possessions found under NGS2C39-5B. And what the handgun possession law says is that no person shall possess any handgun, including an antique handgun, unless that person has first obtained a permit to carry the handgun. Now think about that. You can't possess a handgun unless you have a carry permit for a handgun. So what happened in New Jersey is that a carry permit is, is viewed as a possession permit. And if you don't have a carry permit, which is a possession permit, and you possess a handgun anywhere in New Jersey, even your home, you're not legal unless you have a carry permit under that law. Now, before you get too excited and scared, New Jersey then has exemptions. And under NGS 2C396E, for example, there's an exemption that allows for possession and carrying of firearms in one's home. So when you don't have the permit to carry, then your only way to be legal is if you're under exemptions, and that's where you find your lawfulness by way of exemption, even for a handgun that you acquired with a pistol purchase permit, you still have to stay within the exemptions so that your possession is legal unless you have a carry permit. And then if you have a carry permit, you're not restricted by just exemptions. The carry permit allows your possession outside of exemptions. And so here from our friend who <clears throat> asks about this backpack, it doesn't matter that you're possessing it in this backpack deal doesn't matter because you're still possessing it and your carry permit now covers you for your possession and even if you take the backpack off in your vehicle you're still possessing it in your vehicle you're still possessing it whether it's hooked to your back or not and so what's the charge that you might ever face with a gun on your person or a gun in a backpack, or a gun in a vehicle. What's the charge? The charge would be unlawful possession. And in that charge it says, essentially, you're not guilty of unlawful possession if you have a carry permit. So the bottom line is the carry permit covers your possession in this backpack, on your person, or in your vehicle, or anywhere else other than a restricted place which the law itself makes clear is educational facilities and other places that are specifically restricted. That's the current law. Now, the reason I say current law is this is what 4769, this atrocious carry bill, is looking to do. It's looking to create sensitive places, to create other places of huge number, so it's virtually impossible to actually exercise your ability to carry, where you're prohibited from carrying even though you have a license. In addition, it's attempting to regulate what and how you carry, even to the degree of mandating it that it be a holster that's on your person with a retention strap. That your holster even has to have a retention strap, by the way is in the bill. That's how into the weeds they're getting over how much they want to control your life and your 
ability to have the means of self-defense. And let me tell you, folks, retention straps should not be required. That's an option, maybe, for folks. But the problem with retention straps is they're sometimes dangerous because if your retention strap gets stuck inside your trigger guard in front of your trigger and you push the gun down, guess what? The gun may go bang. And therefore, preferred holsters have retention without the use of trigger straps and remove even the potential danger that a retention strap can provide. And I've had cases of ADs, accidental discharges, from individuals with retention straps. So not a great idea, yet they want to mandate it in this bill. And, of course, if this bill was law, then this backpack wouldn't even be acceptable to carry your gun at all, no less in your vehicle. So the fight is on, and it maintains itself in battle here for this uh, absurd 4769 bill. All your efforts are paying off. When you get those emails from association and such to contact your legislature, you do it. You inundate them. It is critical. They have to hear from us and have to know. It's making a difference. Now, I have another letter here. This is from Timothy. Timothy says, regarding his CCW app, now, technically, we don't really have a CCW in New Jersey, which normally stands for Concealed Carry Weapon. What we have is a P, which would be permit, T to carry C. So we have a PTC, permit to carry a handgun. But that's okay, because a lot of us know CCWs just like the lingo for the PTC. But in the future, try to refer to it in Jersey as what it is, PTC. It says, hi, in Essex County, where exactly does my CCW app go after my municipality police chief signs off on it? The prosecutor's office and the judge or straight to the judge of the judge, which court exactly? Okay. So when you apply to your local chief or the state police, if your local police don't process permits, the chief of police or the issuing authority there the issuing reviewer would be the better term when it comes to permit to carry. They have 60 days to approve or deny your application. Now, don't get confused by that because that 60-day approval or denial simply means their review. But the ultimate issuing authority is the judge. And so once the chief decides to approve or deny, then that determines the next step. So if the chief approves it, then the chief will forward it to the judge of the Superior Court, normally what we call the gun judge, the judge in that court that's handling the gun licensing apps. If the chief takes no action for 60 days, then it's deemed approved and it's supposed to get forwarded to the judge with no action by the chief but deemed approved. If the chief denies your license, then you have 30 days to appeal it to the gun judge, to appeal to Superior Court, challenging the chief's denial and asking the judge to override that denial and to grant the license under the judge's power as the issuing authority. Now, once these permit applications get to the judge, 
then what I've seen in my practice is the judge will uh, send it as well to the county prosecutor so that they become a party to the application. Now, not all judges do that. Some just issue it as the issuing authority. Sometimes they bring in, uh, as a regular practice, the county prosecutor. But some counties may require the, the police to first send it to the county prosecutor so they can review it, and then they send it to the judge. So the process itself is not exactly fixed in stone, but for the most part, it goes to the court and does go to the prosecutor. It's just who gets it first is very dependent on local practice. Now, plainly, though, if there's a denial then you have to serve the court and the prosecutor, et cetera, per the statute to challenge your denial. But with approvals, that's more of a local practice. And uh, it does, though, ultimately have to go to the judge or the issuing authority. Now, let me just warn you, when it goes to the judge, then the judge can approve it. It's not required to have a hearing if the judge wants to approve it. But under law that my firm established, under case law, because it's not in the statute, if a judge is is uh, believing that he may deny your license, then even though it was approved by the chief, then the judge has to give you a hearing and has to give you notice of a hearing because he's contemplating denial. So you get due process still thanks to uh, our Karlstrom case that established it. Uh, and that's important for due process purposes that you get that hearing. Now, the thing to be warned about is even if your chief has approved it, you get a message or an email or anything from the court saying for you to show up in court. The court wants to talk to you about your application. Uh, you need to seriously talk to an attorney about your application because in a number of counties, that is a flag that you're going to be interrogated about something on your application that may lead to the judge wanting to deny your application. And often they're trying to fit you into the catch-all clause of not in the interest of public health, safety, welfare, where they can and often do look at anything that occurred in your background. So it can become dangerous. And then if a judge makes a finding that it's not in the interest of public health, safety, welfare, that can escalate into revocation of your firearm ID card, pistol purchase permits, and even your ability to own guns, etc. So the whole thing can go south badly. So if you're ordered to come in on your application, talk to an attorney beforehand to make sure that... Uh, it's strictly benevolent that the judge is just wanting to see who they're granting a permit to. You know, they want to make sure you're not you know, showing up in court wearing a Punisher T-shirt, you know, something like that. And uh, if that's the case, fine. But if it's something else out there that may be a problem, well, you want to be prepared and ready. This is Evan Knappen reminding you that gun laws don't protect honest citizens from criminals. They protect criminals 
from honest citizens. Gun Lawyer is a Counterthink Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. Reach us by emailing evan at gun.lawyer. The information and opinions in this broadcast do not constitute legal advice. Consult a licensed attorney in your state.